Dr. Toros. How you doing? Hey, Karis. Good to chat. Yay. I'm so excited that you're here with us. And for people who may not know who I'm talking to right now, I got to tell you, this this to me in my, in my sort of brain, in my mind, in my life, actually, is the tech guru in behavioral health. You are the tech whisperer, the tech wrangler. I'm going to use all those terms. And of course, you're an unapologetically Black unicorn, not because you're a Black guy, but because uh, you just do amazing stuff to help the public at large understand what the heck is going on in the wild, wild west of uh, mental health and behavioral health tech. So why don't you talk a little bit about like, what do you do exactly? In part, Karis, I mean, you and I have been looking at this digital mental health space, especially focusing on mobile apps for a long time. And I think as long as we've known each other, we've been talking about this. I think we've watched the space kind of grow from a niche to now, right? It's it's kind of mainstream there, I'd say. It's kind of just really grown. And I directed Division of Digital Psychiatry at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center to the Harvard Hospitals. And clearly, Karis, you're part of our division and one of our expert advisors. But what we do is probably well, three or four main things. Let's see how many I can <laughs> go for. We do a lot of research on digital mental health, especially smartphone apps. And in doing that, we've actually built our own open source free app called MindLamp that different teams use around the world at no cost. We also run a clinic where we actually use smartphones and wearables and sensors as part of care. We don't make let the phones make decisions. We let people make decisions together, but we get that data into clinical care. We look at it. We kind of use digital health to learn how it works. And we learn a lot from folks that we work with. We learn a lot in doing it. We also do a lot of work around rating, evaluating mental health apps, keeping up with the landscape. We have a website, mindapps.org, that you can go to. It's really inspired by work that Karis and I have done with the American Psychiatric Association around the APA's app evaluation framework. And we do a lot of digital literacy efforts that have been done in partnership with Karis and groups that she works with, like Painted Brain, and helping people understand how to use these smartphones, how to Use it for more than making a call, right? How to use it as a tool in your recovery. Well, you do you do a lot. That's why I say you sort of are, well, you're wrangling. You're wrangling a lot of different um, aspects of this uh, digital uh, mental health space. And I think it's fair to say you're also a researcher, and right? And would that be fair to say? Yeah, you're a researcher. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> when we first met, we were uh, at a table at a... Um, I don't know, some kind of like tech little mini symposium or something. And we were talking about, uh, you asked me, how did I get interested in this stuff? Um, How did I get interested in in technology and mental health? And I said, well, you know, there was this article that was um, recently written. And actually, you were one of the authors on the article, if you were not the lead author. that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was about whether or not people with schizophrenia use technology, (laughs) because the thought was, they can't use technology. They have cognitive deficits and all these other issues. And there's just no way they would be using technology. And of course, as a person who has that diagnosis, I'm like, I uh, had all these like apps on my phone. I was playing around with apps. I couldn't find any apps that were specifically for people who have been given that diagnosis or people who experience psychosis or delusions or any of that or voices. Like there just wasn't anything out there. So I was running around trying to play around with like 
mood apps. And so uh, we were talking about the um, it's kind of a, a study that was done around uh, how people with schizophrenia use all types of technology. I think it was a first study of, of that sort done, right? Yeah, it was almost half a decade ago at this point. Yeah. And you know, it's funny, I mean, the results then showed what you have known for longer than me that I've known that people are people. People use technology. It doesn't matter if you have any mental illness or not a mental illness. Yeah. We, we live in a technology-centered world, and the biggest fear is not that technology can make people paranoid. It's are we not making a digital divide? Are we actually making sure everyone can benefit equally from it? And it's just funny how sometimes right, the conversation is really in this kind of, it's, we don't need to talk about technology making people paranoid. We need to make sure it's accessible. Yeah. And um, even we'll talk a little bit about not specific mental health apps, but the digital space when people think about mental health and wellness. A lot of times I say, well, there's already stuff on our phone that we're using and we may not like put two and two together that we're actually using it for our own mental health or emotional well-being. So for example, um, do I need to always download an app? No, I have a camera on my phone and I love using my camera and taking pictures and then putting them into little files. And I know, hmm, you know, if I'm feeling down, I maybe want to look at my puppy file and look at all the pictures of my, my dog or other people's dogs or pets or what have you. Or if there are days where, um, yeah, I, I actually feel kind of good, but I want to remain feeling good. I'll look at my flower file and I'll look at all the pictures of flowers that are in that, that photo file. That's an app, if you will, or it's a part of my phone. It's right there in my pocket. I don't have to go anywhere to kind of open it up and use it. And it's not terribly complicated. And then we get into sort of people developing apps, uh, specifically, they'll call them um, apps for wellness. They won't call them mental health apps per se, kind of if you go in the, in the, in the app store. So how many of those like you know, when people are saying, oh, there are apps out there for mental health, like CBT apps or apps for anxiety or, or mood trackers, it's about 10,000 or mo- more? It's about, in 2017, we tried to guesstimate. We did not count all of them. It's really hard to get an accurate number because they're kind of like waves. They come and they go. They change. There's high tide. There's low tide. But we, we think there's around 10,000 of them if you kind of count the mindfulness meditation wellness based it's it's definitely more than any one person needs or wants let's put it that way <laughs> yeah yeah during uh covid we don't even know exponentially how much that that grew but i think either the apps were already there and attention to the apps exploded especially like mindfulness and meditation apps things like that um and and suddenly this was a way to support people wherever they happen to be within the pandemic to deal with the stressors of the pandemic. Yet, (laughs) there is like, how much evidence is there around the effectiveness of of the apps? And then also, who who exactly is monitoring anything about these apps? You know, it's a good question. I don't think there's really, there's no one effectively monitoring these apps. The Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, has an essence said, look, for apps that are for mental illness and especially towards the wellness space, the mindfulness space, they said we're going to effectively take a hands-off approach. We don't cause harm, so we don't think we need to be kind of looking at them. They 
also, I mean, actually the FTC, though, the Federal Trade Commission, not the FDA, on September 15th, so mid-September, the FTC said, you know, we're a little concerned that so many of these kind of wellness apps are abusing people's data, they're losing it, you may be tracking your steps, and these, who knows where your data is going. So the FTC Trade Commission said, we're putting the whole field on notice. Be careful of people's data. If you lose people's data, if you abuse it, you're also subject to the same things that a healthcare provider would be under HIPAA. So I think we're seeing the landscape evolve and that it may not, you may not be able to just get away into hand, just a wellness app. Don't follow any rules. I can do what I want with your data. That era may be ending. And it gets interesting to see the FTC stepping in, not the FDA. Well, what happened to pre-cert though? So are they um, trying to catch up and do some level of certification of apps that claim to, they have to make some kind of claim about uh, uh, impacting symptoms or something, don't they? Or what's the situation there? So pre-cert is the FDA's kind of new approach to monitor what they formally call software as a medical device, so kind of computer-based therapy and mental health apps for the sake of what we're talking about. Pre-cert is a pilot program. It's unclear when that pilot program will become real or how it will become real. So it's nothing that you and I can kind of take and kind of use or kind of make a decision off today, if that makes sense. So that's why I don't really say there's no effective regulation right now, right? Because people aren't feeling well today. They, they want to use something. They want to pick something today and they want to make a, a good decision. And that's what we just don't really have kind of the regulation helping us around those decisions. Wow. And I, I like the fact that I, I, I saw the notice from the FTC that, that uh, starts to protect us in a way around uh, the, our data and our privacy, because that seems to be a pretty sticky wicket. And where I say, well, look, um, you know, as much as I love technology, I just, I do, uh, there's the cool and, and I say, and then there's the creepy. And then sometimes it can get kind of creepy as far as kind of knowing, well, exactly what does this thing do and who's got the data and who owns the data and do I own the data? Can I get my data back? What are people doing with my data? So like, how are we supposed to make decisions about which app to use, how to use them, who's got what? What are we supposed to do there? It's hard, right? There's no easy way. I think in part the work that you and I, Karis, have done at the American Psychiatric Association is we've built out a framework that's not specific actually to psychiatry. It can work for actually apps outside of mental health. You don't have to be a psychiatrist to do it. You can be a family member, a peer, a supporter, a social worker, a nurse practitioner. But what the APA framework does is nice. It kind of lays out what are the key words and things to look for in a privacy policy? What are the key things to look for on evidence? What to look for on engagement? And as you know, recently we took that kind of American Psychiatric Association framework and we said, let's make it into a searchable database and a busy person can go search and they can say, show me all the apps have a privacy policy and promise the data does not leave the device. Show me all the apps are totally free in Spanish at do CBT. And the, the website is called mindapps.org. It's supported by the Argosy Foundation. There's no business model. There's no sales pitch for it. it it's a wonderful project Argosy Foundation supported for us to do. And I think we have like 650 apps that you can now search. So you can kind of, there's like over 10 privacy buttons you can press. So you can find the app that's the most private and you can watch 650 apps. If you turn on all those privacy features, you're down to like 50 apps. 
So it, it's pretty easy to kind of take the sea of apps when you start asking the hard questions. And it, it's a way to, to help you find an app. It's not going to find, it's not going to tell you one app is good or bad for you, but at least you can search by privacy because you don't want to be searching by popularity, right? You don't want to pick your therapist, your medication, your peer support specialist based on Yelp ratings. No, just like you, you don't want to pick an app based on that either. Yeah. So um, I really like this idea that um, it's like a searchable database. You put in the criteria that is important to you. So it's individualized to you as the person. And um, I think it's important for us to understand too, that the APA evaluation framework, you know, you had a committee of folks uh, who uh, helped with the development and then looking at the apps and, and rating them on the framework. And, and the cool thing was they weren't all psychiatrists. Not that there's anything the matter with the with psychiatrists, of course. You are one, so you know why would I say something like that? But I think um, uh, what's what's really interesting is that that was a very um, cross sectional group or interdisciplinary group of you know people with lived experience, peer provider, nurse, psychologist, psychiatrist. You had social workers, MFTs. I can't remember, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that was really kind of cool because you get everybody's perspective and kind of um, as they're viewing it, which I thought was um, really nice. The the other thing I like about it, and um, I'm just going to reiterate something you, you said, is that it doesn't say whether it's right or wrong. It doesn't say if it's good or bad. Um, it just evaluates it and it puts that decision making in the person's hands based on their level of comfortability. So I know that anything that does... Um, I'm going to say the word, and you're probably going to say, Karis, why are you saying the word? Um, digital phenotyping, which is the passive, like collecting passive information and then making inferences about that passive information on your, for, in this instance, mental health status, right? So um, yeah, no, thank you. <laughs> I am not interested. And you take in my passive data, like, uh, and then trying to make some inference about um, how I'm doing, because I, I don't, I don't know yet what the evidence behind all of that is. So I don't want there to be a false positive, a false negative. I don't want that. So for me, I think there are other people who would be, oh, that's really cool. I want that, um, right? Yeah. So it's just sort of where's everybody's level of risk? Where's everybody's level of interest? What do people want? And then being able to use that kind of evaluation tool uh, for something like that. Like that is the advantage of these digital health technologies, right? We can personalize what people want and people's comfort around privacy, around sensors. And I think that's when it becomes meaningful, right? And it becomes actually useful. Yeah. It, you have to personalize it. You have to customize it. If, if we're using phones to turn them into everyone gets the same thing, we've missed the boat completely. Yeah, it almost is like I've heard people say, well, I'm going to prescribe this app. And I go, oh, please, God, don't do that. <laughs> Like, no, no, no. Because once I think once we start thinking of it like a like a pill, like a prescription, and the person doesn't um, use it as prescribed, then it becomes again about, well, the person's not being compliant versus, well, how do people use apps anyway? Long term, short term, how do people use apps? It's also a question of what are you using the app for, right? It, it, it's not everything does need to be prescribed that's useful in life. And I think, yeah, there is, it's interesting, there's a lot of business cases to me around prescribing apps. You're seeing a lot of companies kind of running out these words like prescription, digital, therapeutic, or prescription, this. It's unclear what that really means, who's prescribing it. And if you think about it, 
Prescriptions can really be written by, say, MDs and nurse practitioners. So if you're calling it a prescription thing, you're basically saying, well, peer support specialists shouldn't be using it, right? Social workers shouldn't be using it, right? Family members. So you're, you're actually in some ways limiting it. So, so I think if you do want to ever call them a prescription, you, you really should have a very good reason why, again, say a peer support specialist should not be using it. And I have not personally seen that use case before. So I think it's a very good point around what we call these things because words do matter. And it's just interesting who's kind of pushing the word prescription. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as we were talking a little bit about some of the data and safety issues, again, the other the other thing that I think peers are, um, especially if they have uh, the training around what is, you know, digital technology, what is digital mental health, what is this field? like? It is a field. And I think people kind of forget that because it's just so cool. Like, ooh, technology, cool. And everybody wants to jump in the tech pile without kind of thinking about, well, wait, this is sort of a, a field that we need to pay attention to. I think um, once we have a better understanding of how to explain exactly what it is and how people can make um, those informed decisions, then I, I I think we can help people with lived experience have a better understanding of exactly what this tech field is. Because a lot of what I'm reading from sort of the consumer survivor movement spaces. Uh, this stuff is invasive. It's going to end up with us being hospitalized. It's going to, uh, you know, be more stigmatizing as it tries to quote unquote diagnosis and have the police come pick us up in crisis. And so there's a lot of, of fear, a lot of hesitance to think about technology as possibly something that might be um, helpful to folks. So that kind of gets me to this thing around digital literacy. What is digital literacy? <laughs> Digital literacy in what we're talking about is being able to use your smartphone as a tool towards your recovery, towards your personal goals, right? It's having the skills, the knowledge, and confidence, right, to kind of engage with digital technology on an equal footing and make use of all these things. Again, just from things on your smartphone, right, let alone downloading an app. And I think it's important because Increasingly, people have access to a smartphone. Not everyone has access to a smartphone, but increasingly you can get a smartphone. Not everyone has internet, but we'll probably get better at connecting people to internet. But the thing I think we're seeing less progress is in does everyone kind of know how to meaningfully use an app to protect their health? And as you said, if people are not comfortable doing things, that's good. They should not have to do them, but do they know how to turn off those settings, make sure their data isn't recorded, right? You, you, it goes mm -hmm. both ways. Even if you do know how to opt out, I guess is what I'm saying, right? So I think digital literacy is key to making sure everyone can meaningfully engage or choose to not engage in an informed way with this kind of new technology. Yeah. Part of what you're doing in your, your digital literacy space is beyond just the apps, because like I know for us, we found out that people didn't have some basic skills, like I don't even know how to set up an email. I don't know how to do like some basic stuff that I need in my everyday life. So what's, what's, what is in your um, digital literacy curriculum? So we call ours one door digital opportunities for outcomes and recovery services. There's a website skills.digitalpsych.org where we have a lot of this up. We have videos, it's all free. And I think what we do in it is we start with how to connect to Wi-Fi, right? How to connect to Wi-Fi is the first step. 
how to take, as you said, a photo with your camera to take a picture of something that makes you hopeful, how to check the news so you can stay connected, how to set up an email account, how to download an app, how to check the weather. Do you live in a place like I do in Boston? You never know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. How to kind of use a public transit app right, to get around, how to check kind of for prescription refills or how to contact your therapist via portal. So a lot of things that aren't apps, but it's made a huge difference for people and kind of having, being able to do stuff just in a modern way. I mean, one example, we had someone that said, look, I tried to go to Chipotle, a restaurant that gives burritos and they don't take cash anymore. It's like I can only pay via the app. Mm-hmm. This person said, I, I want to eat a burrito. I need to learn how to use this app. So it's, it's kind of a whimsical example, but a true case and like it was actually very helpful that person said wow i i had no idea what this restaurant was going to go completely digital i don't know if that's even legal I, I thought you always have to accept cash but it's a different story but the point being we can do simple things that make a big difference for people's quality of life and we'll let them connect to these tools in the future and we usually do these over eight weeks we kind of have one hour a week and it's kind of an eight-week curriculum usually done in groups wow so I just wrote down, you know, we can do little things to improve people's quality of life. And sometimes it that's the other thing I think that happens when we're looking at, and when I say we, I'm talking about the mental health space. <laughs> so when we're looking at either introducing apps, integrating apps, recommending apps, or hearing about what apps people are using, lots of different ways to do this. A lot of times, um, I think people are being very, um, is the word concrete or narrow? or concretely narrow, how about that, around symptoms, symptom reduction, and, you know, counting, counting your symptoms, or, you know, doing a PHQ-9, you know, again, GAD7P, all those things are, are fine. Yet there's, there's this whole life that um, we have to live with or without these symptoms. And how can technology help us with the rest of the things that are happening in our lives that might be stressors? So love the example of, well, the burrito is a great example, that that's just part of somebody's life, right? But, but so is taking public transportation. How many people in public mental health are taking public transportation? And, you know, we're still, they might still be using the paper schedule. But what if they could put the, the um, app for their transportation system on their phone? Maybe they didn't know how to do that before. Now they know how to do it and helps them be on time because you can kind of watch the, the bus or the train and where it is. And if it's late, if it's early, I mean, that's kind of cool. You know, it's funny. I think everyone we've talked to has agreed, like, it's a very good idea, something we should do. The part that no one can agree on is who should do it and who should pay for it, right? Is it a thing that the kind of doctor's office or therapist's office should provide? Should the kind of county or community provide it? Should healthcare plans provide it? So it's funny. We The one thing we've never been able to do with it is find kind of strong kind of support to expand it. Again, not because people don't like it, just everyone kind of says, well, that's someone else's job to train someone around it. And again, we've talked about machine learning and kind of apps, but it also doesn't kind of have that kind of flashiness to say, like, we're teaching people to connect to Wi-Fi. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's not an algorithm. And it shouldn't be an algorithm, but it's just, it's funny where, again, you and I talk and we go, of course this matters. Like, this is probably, you could say, the most important thing in the whole field. This yeah. is what is going to drive equity. Yeah. This is going to drive outcomes. But it's something, again, that people go, no, I'm more interested in supporting an algorithm sometimes. And you go, oh, how do we kind of, Maybe that's something you and I should plan afterwards. Like how, how do we make this something that people get really excited about? Yeah, I think this is one of the 
to, to me, digital literacy is the coolest thing since sliced bread. There's nothing creepy about it. It's totally 1000% cool. But the reason I think it's cool is yes, it's, it starts to um, create an equal playing field. So if I haven't had technology, if I haven't had access to technology and suddenly the world goes, um, you know, telehealth, which it, which it did. And then it's like, oh my gosh, now I've got to get the person, the technology. So let's just say, okay, I'm going to mail the, the phone to, to, to your house. It's already going to be turned on and, and ready to go, but it'll arrive at your house so that we don't have to kind of like, you know, kind of distancing and all that kind of stuff. It arrives at the person's home, but they've never operated technology well, you just gave them something that they they technically are going to struggle to use if they can use it at all. Exactly. Um, and secondarily, um, yeah, I think I think that's kind of um, well, I think that's very problematic. And then the question becomes, um, and I think in the telehealth environment, what is it that the person is trying to achieve ultimately? I think right now we're still again looking um, primarily at making sure people have a connection to their doctors, making sure they have access to either yeah, therapy as well as medication management. But above and beyond that, what about all the other stuff that a person needs to have in their life? And how now has everything turned to some sort of technology interface to achieve that? So we have to understand all of these things. And I think by engaging the folks that we want to, you know, introduce and, and have used technology, tell us what they would like, how they're using the technology, um, how they, and how they want it to achieve some of their uh, life and wellness goals would be, I don't understand why that isn't like foundational. Now, I wonder if it's because everyone, okay, we'll say almost everyone owns a smartphone. Almost everyone knows someone that has a mental illness or has experienced a mental illness. So I wonder if sometimes people oversimplify the field. So I have a phone. I have some experience direct or indirect on mental illness. I'm going to do it the way I want to do it, which, which makes sense to start out that, that way. But sometimes, again, I think that there, people underestimate this whole space and field yeah. and kind of don't or, or they kind of build something that would work for them, which is great, but that may not work for everyone yeah. else. Yeah, yeah. So um, one of the things I'm really interested in is how to um, really increase the number of people of color who are leading in the development, leading in research, leading in some of this work around um, advancing, you know, digital technology, especially in the mental health space. So, so first, I'm going to ask you one question. How did you even get into this? So, so when I first met you, I didn't actually know you were a psychiatrist, but then you have this whole kind of like techie background too. How did you even get into that? So exactly. I guess I had a techie background doing electrical engineering and computer sciences, my undergraduate studies and what I've always been interested in technology and computers. So for me, it was kind of a natural fit to take kind of mental health, which is always interesting in technology and computers and as smartphones came. So it was a very nice kind of intersection of the two fields. And of course, there was some luck that the field was kind of taken off when I, you and I were just beginning to what you were looking at before when I met you and just began to look at it. Yeah. So what can we, what can we do? Do you think to, um, you know, encourage people who maybe already have an interest in tech to think about the intersection of, you know, technology and mental health. I mean, I watched Coded Bias and I was like, okay, how can I get those those folks interested in what's happening in in mental health and what we understand about 
some of the interesting things in algorithms and AI and, and that that black box and you know, not having black people in the black box <laughs> makes the black box not very black. Okay, that was really weird, but you know what I'm saying, right? Exactly. I mean, there's a lot of stereotypes about this field itself in that kind of people say, well, you need to have like a huge computer science experience. You have to be an AI expert. You have to be a design expert. That's not true. I would almost recommend that. I know, Karis, you and I at the beginning of kind of COVID lockdowns wrote an article about kind of the, it's in JMIR, if you search for my name and your name, JMIR Mental Health, you'll find it. But I think you and I kind of together, and we kind of wrote where we see the future of this going. Mm -hmm. And I think if people even just read that article and look at the references we had, I think it gives a pretty good indication of kind of what a roadmap may be. And I think people will see there's roles for everyone in this space. Again, if you're a designer, if you're an artist, if you have lived experience, if you're a psychiatrist, if you're a programmer, if you're someone who's of good ideas, like to help people, but I think if you can have that article, it gives a roadmap of where we're moving towards and all the different ways and the references. So I would say read as much as you can start from there. But as you read more, you'll kind of become at least disheartened at first. because You'll say, oh, there's not much known. But then you'll kind of identify these niches where you can fit in and you can make a terrific difference. But I think if you only listen to other people, they'll say, oh, it's all solved or it's all done or you, you, you have no, you don't fit into it. But I think if you start reading it, and just kind of looking at the objective facts, you'll go, oh, chatbots really can't do that much today. There, there's a lot of room to go in chatbots. Oh, the way we share data back in visualization is done. No, there's so much more. But you have to get to the facts and the reading first, because else you'll kind of get misguided and misfeared. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I think that's um, how I started, you know, beyond just having my own interest, because I was trying to figure out what can I do to help myself when my provider is not around, which is not, you know, they're not available 24 seven, right? My, my parents, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm, I was an adult. Well, I still am an adult. I'm an adult. I, I don't live in the same, um, you know, household or even, you know, state as, as my family. I live on a different coast and, you know, they're technically not available. I mean, they are, but technically like who wants to call their mom at, you know, three, four o'clock in the morning. If I have to, I will, you know, but so, so that's actually why I started trying to figure out what's on this phone that I could be using or what are some apps out there? Because I had a Fitbit and I thought, well, there has to be something that's like a Fitbit, but maybe it's on my phone that might be helpful way back in the day, right? Yep. Um, and then that's what um, took me to the next level of when I opened uh, the, the first set of apps, I started to wonder, where's the research behind this stuff? Yeah. Um, and so I, I decided to download for me an app that um, had some research and was continuing to do research and where I agreed to have my data be part of the research because I really wanted to see what this um, um, app um, really grow and what it was doing. So it had some preliminary stuff. But um, and then I just continued to read articles and um, it really helped me because I am I am not a tech person. I'm a geek, but I am not a tech person get into this thing, you know, in, in my little slice and little way. And so I, I just want it to be sort of viral and in, infectious with, with other people, especially people of color, because um, again, sometimes if you see yourself represented in the workforce uh, in, in doing the work for uh, people who are entering in, it will help people enter in and it'll help people um, also stay once they're entered in. Is there anything else that you would want to leave our listeners with about sort of like, the one 
as, as the tech whisperer, <laughs> uh, behavioral health tech whisperer, what, what one thing would you want to leave our listeners with? I think there's a lot more to do in this field. There's opportunities for everyone to partake. Everyone does need to partake to make it work. We're still in the early stages. If you think it's wild today, it's going to only be more tomorrow, next week, and next year. So you're not too late if you're looking to get into this. It's the right time. So I think that's my final message. So thank you so much, Karis, for having me. Well, thank you, John. It's always such a pleasure to uh, talk with you about technology. It just makes me super duper excited. And I, I hope it makes other people just as excited to enter in. So thanks for giving up your time and uh, having this conversation. And for our listeners, hey, remember to listen in next week. More to come.